This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. for Military Podcast. We'd like to give a big shout out to Jonathan Lambert and everybody supporting us over on our Patreon site. And you too can also support us there by going to patreon.com slash mentors the number four M-I-L. All right. Well, first off, Jeff, welcome to the Mentors for Military Podcast, man. I really appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Thank you. I, I believe in your mission. I appreciate Tom, you and Jen introducing us. Anywhere that we can collaborate, uh, getting the word out about veterans and, and what they're doing in their life after military service is a, is a huge push. Did you guys serve together or were you guys in separate teams or something of that nature? Well, I'll let Tom answer that. See, I was an, I was an officer. He was an NCO. So he'll tell you, no, no way did we serve in the same capacity. And <laughs> I was in a different, <laughs> and I was in a different squadron. So it's, it's two, it's two different lives, but, but yes, I mean, that, that, that's what I think is, is interesting is we, we knew each other. We didn't work downrange together, but it, as you know, most of the people in the military and the, those of us that migrate into special operations, um, we're all very, there's a, there's a commonality between us. And, and I, as we leave service, you choose on what you're going to do. And, and Tom and I share a passion for employing veterans in, in something that they feel purposeful beyond their military service. And that's one of the things we definitely want to highlight today. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Tom explain uh, how I was the uh, silver spoon, white collar dude who sat at a desk all day. <laughs> it's just like the Civil War, man. Just like the Civil War. <laughs> yeah, like, like Jeff said, it's cut from the same cloth, just different jobs, different squadrons. Um, same mission, same mentality, same focus. Um, and guys, that unit from top to bottom are all top notch. You know, I mean, there's always a bad apple everywhere. But I mean, if you had to have a bad apple, I'd rather have one in that unit. You know, and uh, guys are all working for the same end state, same goal, with the same motivation all the time. Man. Now, you originally came into the army what uh, under Ranger contract, or was that something that you ended up doing later on? Because I understand you ended up going to First Ranger Bat. Yep. So back in 87, when I graduated from high school, I was graduating. I wasn't sure what it was I wanted to do. And I had heard about this crazy thing called Ranger Inn, and I decided to, to, to give it a shot. And I, and I loved what I was doing, uh, ended up extending there for a couple of different schools, you know, did, did five years from 87 to 92, all down at 1st Battalion in Savannah. I think, are you an alma mater from there also, Tom? No, I get a lot of that. People are like, hey, Ranger okay. buddy. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get dimed out for that. I did not say that. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because I can, you know, unlike you know, most men, I, I can find you a very particular plot of land. There's a piece of red clay in Fort Benning, Georgia, where the back then it was called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program, where we they smoked us. Oh, yeah. And there and nothing will ever grow there because it's it's littered with broken dreams. Like men, you know, just broken young men <laughs> who gave up on their dream. And you know, I, I can walk to that piece plot of land and stand there and say, This is at 18 years old where I where I decided to become a man. I mean, there's no there's no question about it. Um, and then at the end of five years, uh, as, as Tom and I were kind of joking, it was what, what to do next. Is this, is, is this something I want to make as a lifelong career? What is it I want to do? I went off to college and explored uh, college for a few years and recognizing I truly missed the life and then came back in this time as a commissioned officer uh, working at 2nd Ranger Battalion up at Fort Lewis Okay, and, and then uh, went Special Forces from there. And it, it, it truly became my profession more than just kind of an exciting journey um, as a young man. So what did you think about the differences between the 1st and 2nd then? Because, you know, 
There's totally different locations. Oh, Everybody, yeah. Here go. we go. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. And 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 so, the 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 difficulty in answering that question was there was also a, a time lag. So when I when I joined, we were. We were Vietnam-era equipment, mm-hmm. Vietnam-era tactics. I mean, all we did was hump in the jungle, and 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 the, the 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 mission was getting to the objective. You know, like the actions on the objective was nothing; it was getting there. You know, and the it was it it, it was very modernized when McChrystal and Sergeant Major Hall took over. Um, Sergeant Major Major Hall was the regimental commander. You know, in the late '90s, I think he took over in '97. He was my first sergeant back in the '80s. So you can you can see that difference. So it was a whole different kind of mentality on modernizing the the the, the ranger. I think, uh, as Tom could talk about too, the the blending of those missions in Somalia, where the the rangers recognized, you know, what tactics worked and didn't work, and how we needed to bring modern equipment in into the the ranger regiments. So there was that difference. But I also go back to, um, and I don't know if this is an urban legend or not, but. I was told that when the two Ranger battalions were created, they took the old Ranger companies um, and those guys that had served in Vietnam, and they and they built the first Ranger battalion. Yeah, and they took more of these Lurs guys and these SF oriented guys, and they made the second Ranger battalion. So, legend has it that even from the outset, there were two very different kind of ethos in you know embedded into those different battalions. Um, I don't know if it's like that anymore, but I certainly felt that. When I went there, there was a freedom of thought, a freedom of kind of individual decision making at 2nd Battalion. I don't know how much of that is attributable to McChrystal and Hall or if it truly was the character of those of those units. Yeah, I always thought that it was more from the LERP and LERSA units and stuff from Vietnam, but I didn't realize, are you stating that there was two separate kind of missions or objectives? Those that were more recon, LERP, uh, LERSA and stuff ended up going into 2nd? as opposed to first or the opposite of what you just described the, again i i have never read anything about it you know I, what i do find fascinating i'm i'm taking this in a little bit different direction though is is when we talk about the oss the 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 the, the world war 2 era era office of strategic services when when that split you had the white collar college grads going into the cia and you had the blue collar midwesterner southerners guys like tom and i they went into special forces so that there you certainly see the the break and that was by design um so legend has it and someone can can write in on the podcast and let us know if that if a, if a similar thing happened with the ranger Battalion. i'm sure they but, will yeah yeah, yeah exactly. somebody <laughs> will tell us exactly how it went down exactly <laughs> There's- Especially if we take a stance, they'll correct us faster. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny how leadership sets those mentalities. I yeah. mean, even in the unit, there were different squadrons, different mentalities, different, you know, oh, this squadron's the chill squadron. This one's a party one. This one's the ranger squadron, the hard nose. You know, they never stop kind of squadron. And everywhere I've been, it's always been the leaders that set that, that mood, if you will, of how everyone else reacts. How did you find it then when you came back as an officer? Did you find um, difference in attitude, approach, uh, how they approached you, and that type of thing? You know, I think I think I'm an NCO at heart. You know, I was I was trained by incredible NCOs. I you know the what they literally beat into me as a young private never never went away. So I I never felt different at all um, up until reaching that lieutenant colonel level you know I, as a as a lieutenant as a captain as a major and you know i made those choices into special forces and, and then going up up to the the special mission unit i never felt different i just felt like i had a different set of priorities you know yeah. if tom and i were partnered up and working together he had what his priorities were i had mine and they overlapped and and it was fantastic but somewhere along that lieutenant colonel level um Things things begin to bifurcate a little bit, and and I didn't care for that as much, and it was one of the one of the things that attributed to me to me leaving, at uh, you know at, around that time. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we all know here that when you reach that certain level, there's just um, I don't know, there's that different rite of passage. There's the uh, political aspects that start coming into play. You know, things become a lot different when when you start going to the O six and above. Well, and you know, one of the ways I say it is, I I love being a player, I love being a coach player, I love being a coach. I was I'm not interested in being 
the, the management, you know, sitting up there in the, in the, in the box. That just isn't, it isn't who I am. Um, and that is again, what, what contributed to leaving and, and starting up garden group. You know, I, I realized what I really like doing is the hunt, the counter network operations and, and building small teams, uh, and choosing your adversary. And, and I wasn't able to do that anymore underneath the military structure, even in special operations, um, and look to rebuild that same type of structure, all of the, the skills that we had learned and perfected and applying them just to a new target set. Did you end up going into um, special forces or did you go directly Delta? Nope, I did. Uh, I went to 10th group. So okay. uh, that, that was a wonderful experience. Again, fantastic unit. Um, all, all the groups are different. I think where they're at with the mountains uh, and really the, I wasn't there but a few months and we cut our teeth on Iraq right away. So that was a that was a fantastic precursor. I, I did not see ODA time any different really than 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 troop time. You know, it it was a slightly different mission. But again, like Tom was talking about, that that small unit leadership. You know, that that idea of that mask of command. Of, I don't know if people still read that book, but I I love the leadership where you you can't fake it. You know, my dudes know my strengths. They know my weaknesses. I know theirs. You can't pretend you're something you're not. And that's what I that's what I always enjoyed. And and that's what I think special ops brings out of this teamwork. You 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 can't be a faker for long. Did you yeah. uh ever run into Mike Pritz? Well, I was gonna ask you if, if Mike was coming on. Yeah, Mike smoked the living bags out of me. Did you get a chance to talk to him? <laughs> no. Does he, he remember you? No, uh, I did not get a chance to ask him about that. Damn it, I forgot all about it. Uh he thought this was a great topic. I don't think he recognized your name because when I mentioned, you know, about doing the episode and everything, he was kind of bummed that he wasn't gonna be able to come on. You know, he's now coaching high school football and teaching history in, in high school and so uh he wasn't available anyway, uh to well, join us. And- and he won't remember me. I, I was a roster number. You know what I mean? But you know, yeah. you know, you know how you go. It, he was teaching. I think it was small unit tactics. And you know, so you go yeah. through SFAS, and you think that's the selection course. Well, no, no, it's actually small unit tactics. That's it. You know, and I just remember like constantly being like, how many, how many times do I have to get smoked? Like at what point? At what point am I in the club? And then, of course, as you know, Tom, <laughs> selection's an ongoing process. We say that. It's like, dude, at what point can I just, you know, can my credentials speak for themselves? And there, right. that's a. While while that is a wonderful thing that we don't allow people to rest on their laurels, it it can also get it, it can also get fatiguing. So that that balance is interesting. But yeah, I remember Mike; he smoked the living daylights out of him. <laughs> That's awesome, man! I wish you would have been on here because I know that would have been a good conversation. He talks a lot about that and talks a lot about you know guys uh, quitting you know halfway through. They made it almost to the end and they're just giving up. They don't realize you know and. Uh, it, it's one of the things that comes out of him. So I know that this would have been a good conversation. He'd have loved it. Well, you know, I bet you he'll remember this. I was a run in Muldoon, so he might remember me just from just from from running. Even those are old; those are old eighty term eighties terms. Run in Muldoon. <laughs> but uh, I remember Mike was there specifically in one of the one of the SFAS things. It was a it was a road march, and it was supposed to be a certain. It was undisclosed length, right? And we get back to. Camp McCall there, we get back to the camp and they, they, they march us right through camp and it's still going. And it really, little did we know it was only like 400 more meters, but the amount of people that quit because they thought they were going to finish at, you know, there at, at the camp. And it was, it was just a a mind game and and ask Mike if he came up with that diabolical plan, but it did. I mean, it it was littered with guys were like, I'm mentally broken. I can't make it. And they really only had to go 400 more meters. They all physically could have done it. They just weren't prepared to suck it up a little more. That's when you find the real people. That's when, <laughs> yeah. you, that's when you find the people you want, you know, um, the no, the never quitters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we always talk about that, too, about never quit, never quit, and keep focusing on the next, you know, telephone pole or whatever when you're on a ruck and the whole bit. But truly within selection of what you guys are talking about, it's all about uh, – just never giving up because you don't know when the end is over until they tell you it's over. And I think that's one of the things, Tom, you mentioned in your podcast and you were going through selection for Delta is you had no clue, even at the point, I think, in which they told you it was over. You didn't quite believe them, I think, if I remember correctly. No, I, I fought off Dick Davis and uh, uh, General Garrison. They were trying to take my rucksack and call me by my name, and I was freaking out, yanking it from him. No, 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 I'm not done. <laughs> 
And they kept saying, for you, selection is over. I'm like, why? Why is it over? And they're like, well, the, the stress phase is ended. I'm like, why has it ended? <laughs> yeah. And I literally was yanking my rucksack away from them, and Dick was chasing me. And uh, and he finally was like, look, you finished it. And I went, oh, okay, I have my ruck, man. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> I, wa- I wasn't going to quit. I wasn't going to be pulled out. It was like, no, 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 no. I'd already passed quitting 20 miles back, so it was – I wanted to quit earlier, and I, and I didn't, so I wasn't going to quit then, and I wasn't going to let anybody pull me. So That's good stuff. Good stuff. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, though, Tom. I'm sure you're the same way. Man, If what we're doing now in many ways is harder than any of that. You know, I, I put put a rucksack on and just march until my legs fall off. Like, I, I, I this, all these things we're talking about are directly applicable to, to the monotony and, and staying in the fight with a nonprofit, trying to get something built. You know, it's, man, in many ways, this is harder than any of that because you never, there is no finish line. No. You know, it's just the finish line. You get a little closer and it moves, a little closer and it moves. Yeah, every every day um, till midnight and then first thing in the morning when I wake up at four or five, it's like, okay, I look at my phone, it's, there's a text or some kind of social media and it's always something, it's always the same for what I'm doing. It's always, you know, PTSD. It's always drinking. I can't, I'm angry. I can't sleep, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's start this. But it's, it's, it never ends and it'll never end. And you just have to have the mentality that it's never going to end. I meant when I'm dead, I no longer will worry about what I have to get done. <laughs> well, Tom, let me ask you this because I, you know, I, I always felt like I'd have that moment, you know, in battle or something where, oh, it's all about this. You know, it's all about this place and time, like all of that training, all of that work, all of these exercises, all of that combat. It's, it's for this moment. And that moment never came. And, and I still I still ask that now, like was was all of that was 25 plus years of military service just just for this. So I can stand at a computer and build a, a, a nonprofit that's going to help women and children be better protected and, and, and offer uh freedom to those oppressed you know i i'm sure you ask yourself the same things yeah and my wife puts it um it's just my next mission you know it's just our next mission what we're doing it's we got the tools from before we used them then now we're taking the tools we learned before and we're using them now for for a better a better mission really i mean a humanitarian issue um for on our own home front instead of overseas doing it for someone else you know for quote u.s policy or whatever but and now we're now we're helping people better their lives, you know, or bring them home, you know, for what you guys are doing is amazing. And all the tools that you have from before, you're just continuing your service and you're using them now in a, in a larger and better capacity, in my opinion. Yeah. This might be a great actual, uh, you know, segue into what you're doing now, post-military service, since you, you know, you talked about the number of years that you spent in and everything. And so what was it that had you, uh, formed this nonprofit organization that you were just describing? What was the driving force? I think it was a, a combination of things, and 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 one of them is as we've been discussing, you you begin to shape your character little by little. You don't even recognize it, you know. And these these mottos of Rangers lead the way, and to free the oppressed, you oppressively bear, and oppressors beware. These are all little mottos, and they're badges, and they're things we wear in our uniforms. But I don't, I didn't realize until after I retired, like how much those became a, a part of me. Like I don't, dude, those those that flows through my blood. Mm-hmm. You know, I will, I, I, and I look back through my, my life, even as a young kid st- sticking up for people and, and, and a, a real man, I like where, where we're starting to see this, where a, a, a real man isn't passive. A real man can deal violence at the drop of a pin, but he doesn't. And when he does, it's selective to defend someone else. And, and, uh, as I was moving, as we talked before in the career, recognizing just what made me tick and i i had this strange kind of pull um towards sex trafficking and the the oppression and the and the violence that we were seeing in the world against women and i don't know why i still can't explain it um but as i began to look into it and recognize that what many of us think thought and still think that sex trafficking is a foreign crime that this is alive and well in the u.s we're just as bad if not worse than other nations, you know, this idea that in America you can be anyone you want, you can do anything you want, you can have anything you want, and uh, and with all of that, we have a whole group of of men that aren't satisfied with that. They want to buy 
a young girl for their pleasure, and then we have other men that want to want to sell them for pleasure. That just really, really made me upset, and 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 look to see as we have this motto all across special operations: if not me, then who? If not now, then when? Um, and looking at, like Tom mentioned, those skills that we developed, I thought was going to be a decent overlap. You know, maybe a little bit of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, counter network, teamwork, leadership building. All of those things would maybe apply to a certain degree to counter trafficking. But what blew me away is it is a one for one. The, the, the overlap is uncanny. And these predators, these pimps, these traffickers, man, they remind me so much of ISIS. They remind me so much of Al-Qaeda. They are just narcissists to a, a clinical degree, and they just believe they're put on this earth to do whatever it is they feel they want to do. It's, uh, it's an incredible transition how alike it is. I found some statistics that were pretty shocking, Jeff, and you probably have heard these already from Nova HTI, and it was about human trafficking is the fastest-growing organized crime activity in the United States making almost $32 billion a year for traffickers while destroying the lives of tens of thousands of innocent children. The annual number of persons prosecuted for commercial sexual exploitation of children, from what uh, this report said from 2004 to 2013, it increased from 1,405 to 2,776 cases. But think about that for a minute. We just talked about a $32 billion industry or whatever you want to call it, and uh, the number of lives that are affected without uh, throughout this whole thing. Yet that number right there of the number of cases that actually go through prosecution is relatively small. Statistically, less than 1% of pimps and traffickers are ever prosecuted. So th- this is, we'll, we'll use this as a, as a thread. You know, what, what is one of the reasons special ops soldiers survive on the battlefield is they study their enemy. They really know that, 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 adage of know your enemy, know yourself, and you will succeed or you will not fear a thousand battles. So really understanding what your enemy is and, and how they do what they do has always been critical to to me personally, the successes and, and the units we've been with on the battlefield. So understanding this, this pimp trafficker network and their mentality opens up spaces to exploit. And that's one of them that I, when I talk to people, this is a business yeah, you know, like you, you have to disassociate that these are humans. This is a business. They can make a ton of money, and they have a ninety-nine percent chance that they can get away with it. So if if you disassociate that we're talking talking about people expecting you to treat a human like a human, you can make a quarter million dollars, half a million dollars on selling a girl, and you've got a ninety-nine percent chance of getting away with it. That's just a practical business decision, and we've got to change those odds. That's why I'm excited about this too. What I'm in no. You know, Guardian Group is in no illusion that we're going to wipe out traffic, and there's always going to be that abuse. But, man, imagine if we can double that to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16% of predators and traffickers are prosecuted. You know, let's do some simple math. T- let's say 10 predators are prosecuted. The average stable of girls is 4 to 5 girls. That's offering a path to freedom to 40 to 50 girls. That's why it's so important to us that we work with law enforcement to get that predator behind bars because it gives opportunity and choices that these girls wouldn't otherwise have. Hey, Jeff, do you know um, you're working with law enforcement and you're, you're also the part of the people that pick these people up, which is is part of it. Now, is anyone working with lawmakers to change because cops just put people in jail and then the lawmakers decide to let them out? You know, it's catch and release again. We've seen it before. And drugs flow across the border. And until the government, okay, and this is Tom's opinion, until the government found a way to make money by legalizing marijuana, okay, let's stop the flow of marijuana and other drugs. I mean, Americans are buying the drugs. We can't blame other countries for growing and sending it. It's, it's business. It's money. And like you said, they're not humans. It's a business. you got to hit it where it hurts a business, not a person, because that's why they're doing it. The sickos are doing it for pleasure. Those are the individuals. The people who sell them and providing it is it's a business. It's all a business. So, Tom, it's a great question. And as you know, you have to prioritize what you do. You can't do you can't be everything to everyone. So I would say um, the laws, the specific laws when it comes to trafficking, they're just like gun laws, et cetera. There's a lot of laws that they're they're solid. We have to enforce them. We have to understand them where we have been putting some of our effort into 
is laws that affect corporate America. So one of the one of the things that we're looking at with Guardian Group and why I'm not a federal agent or a cop or doing this outside the government or as part of the government is we see the true value in this in this triangle. You've got the government and what it does. You've got the nonprofit sector, which involves philanthropic endeavors, all sorts of interesting people, community awareness. And then you have corporate America. And the three of those together solves problems. So where we have been actually pushing legislation is making corporations accountable for the choices they make. You know, like like uh, who's hosting these escort sites? Are hotels doing the due diligence to protect their guests? You know, when their guests are victims. So we want corporate America to step in. You know, as divided as we are as a nation, what still boggles my mind is we think that the government's going to solve this. The government is not going to solve our problems. It's us. It's us collectively. And w- one more piece on that, too, going back to where I was saying with the laws that are in effect, you know, there's there's a push across America, and I, and I agree, we don't want to bog down the courts with uh, arresting prostitutes. We also are, it's, it's sensitive arresting Johns, the buyers. But what we're trying to teach t- law enforcement is you're never going to find the minor Unless you do these other steps, just like you and I, when we were hunting high-level al-Qaeda, high-level ISIS, there's a certain amount of tempo. There's a certain amount of, 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 of punching and counter-punching you know, that has to be done. So you can't just say, we don't want to arrest prostitutes. We don't, we don't want to arrest the buyers. We just want to find the miners and get them out of the crime. It doesn't work that way. You've got to chip away at this. You have to have very specific goals when you're conducting these things. And then you're going to see the kids. And that's why we're focused on minors, because it's an it's a open and shut case. If you're under 18 years old, it's trafficking. It's not prostitution. It's trafficking. You know. And the other pragmatic approach to this it was when I talked to cops is, man, you know, a, a little kid goes missing, and you, and you think that they're suspected of getting roped into the sex industry, into sex trafficking. Any of us would stop what we're doing and, and, and react to that. You can't rescue all of these different individuals at one point in time. So that's one of the pieces we're working with law enforcement is, is how to develop a strategy and a plan to, to get these kids out of this crime. Yeah, globally, the International Labor, Labor Organization estimates that there are 4.5 million people trapped in forced sexual exploitation uh, globally. And what I heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong as well, Jeff, is that like 50% or greater of those are under the age of 17. So when you talk about minor, are you also referring to more of even the state minor, what they refer to as minor, which in some case they may refer to a legal adult as 16, 17, something of that nature? Yeah, so when I talk minors, it's it's specifically under 18. And, right. I, and I think those statistics, those global statistics are pretty true. I think that we're down that, that that about 25% of the sex trade in America are minors but it's it's hard to see and let me are you in Atlanta is that where you're yes. sitting that remember yeah so, which i understand 200 million dollar 290 million dollars uh, just in Atlanta alone uh, on an yeah. average I, I couldn't believe that wow. and here's and here's what we anchor a bunch of our stuff off of cuz a lot of these stats are reports you know what i mean and they're estimates i tell you what i can count we can count how many escort ads are put in a, in a town. And in Atlanta, you guys have about 1.3 million escort ads a year. Get out of 1. here. 1.3 million. You guys are nasty. <laughs> hey, where are you at, Tom? Let me pull yours up. Where are you at again? You're in Kansas. No. St. <laughs> St. <Saint> Louis. <laughs> I have St. Louis. I don't have St. Louis on here. So let's, let's just stay with uh, Atlanta. I, we're pretty bad, though. Oh, you are. I mean, it, it, it's all largely commensurate. And and then the, the, the thing that we're looking at, too, is in that 1.3 million ads, how many of those are advertised as 18 to 25? Because that's where they're going to, you know, that's where they're going to hide the young girls. They're, you know, they're not going to advertise them as 16, 17. They're not that stupid. Well, about 900,000 of those ads are, are 18 to 25. So that that's just that's just Atlanta, man. And I'm sure I'm sure St. Louis is is probably pretty close. I mean, it's, it's just crazy how prolific it is. I've heard some stats uh, about the malls around here and, and nearby and St. Charles and some other areas that are, are, are through the roof to where Jen's like, no, nah, you're not going to the mall alone ever. So, I mean, it's bad enough that that she's picked up on it. Won't let the kids go anywhere alone. Well, you know, and that's, Again, when we look at this as a crime and you and you ask these questions, why is it getting worse? 
one of those simple answers is the advent of technology. I mean, it used to be you had to find that girl at the mall. Well, now, you know, don't don't freak out, Jen. Okay, if if your if your daughter's not at the mall, is she online? Because they don't have to go to the mall. They reach our kids online. And what are our what are our, our boys and girls doing online? They're sharing their deepest, darkest concerns, their secrets, their their yeah. loves, their hates. You know, so these these predators are out there. Instead of reaching one at a time, they're reaching ten, twenty, a hundred at a time. And that's that's precipitating this this increase. There's just so many victims out there to exploit. Well, you think about even, you know, you were talking earlier about ISIS and stuff, how much that they're using the Internet and the ability to reach out across borders and everything else. When you're trying to now be the enemy of today, it's the best way to not have to worry about dropping leaflets, to not have to worry about, you know, uh, getting into a community and trying to bring your awareness of what you're wanting to do or anything. All you got to do is get on the Internet. You have this, you know, technology or this ability right in front of you to reach across any type of boundary that you want to go through. And they're doing it. They're doing it wholesale. And, and yeah. What What are those laws? Right. Yeah. There there probably isn't any. And of course, Jeff, you had talked about this, that that's typically how they go out and get their prey. And that um, what they're doing is uh, they're enticing them in such a way that these young individuals don't realize what they're getting themselves trapped into. So l- let me let me add one thing because people always ask, and you're you're right. What and one one of the things I ask people is, what's the difference between a predator that's trying to lure your daughter into the sex trade or a, a young boy who literally is interested in your daughter? Like how how do those look differently? online in text messaging you know on the social on social media and by and large when they start it doesn't because that predator is posing as an interested boy or boyfriend but 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 here's the thing that that i want listeners to hear and and definitely uh parents it's the isolation piece so whatever makes your son or daughter who they are whatever is stable in that in that life. I don't care if it's a church, if it's a school, if it's a cheerleading team, a soccer team, lacrosse, like what, whatever it is, that's the positive influence on that child. A boyfriend should not want to separate that, separate her from that. You know what I mean? Like any, any boy would recognize, okay, I'm interested in this girl and this is what makes her who she is. I want to double down on that. I want to, I want to invest in that because it's such a positive uh, influence on her. The predator wants the opposite. He needs to pull her away from those things and isolate her. So that's that's the number one thing that that parents should look for is that isolation. And even that's not easy though, because we we all grew up, right? I met my I met my wife. We just went over thirty years anniversary, by the way. Round of applause! Hey, congratulations! Congrats! That's a serious milestone. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy to think about. But we met when we were fifteen, sixteen years old. Of course, we isolated ourselves. In a degree, we, you know, we fooled around, we made out, you know, happy day style, that kind of thing, you know, went to make out hill. I mean, but it, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. But if, if you're seeing this, you're seeing a daughter or a son be pulled away from the things that really make them who they are. The, those are the creepy telltale signs that that should be the indicators that parents are looking for. But that also uh, precipitates a relationship with your child to even know and see that happening ah see that's that's the key right there i mean no matter what's going on in your child's life you know having some kind of relation uh with them so that you can understand what's affecting them their moods uh and all that kind of stuff it shouldn't be that much of a surprise i guess is what i'm trying to say um and and i think that if it is a surprise that some things might be going on then you might want to dig a little bit deeper as a parent for sure yeah, and nothing's easy because we all go through that. I mean, that's that's the cycle of life. Otherwise, we'd all live at home forever, right? You go through you go through those tensions with your family, you become your own person. And and that's also why there are minors involved in this. It's it's not that again, think of this as a business. It's not that there's a lot of men that want to have sex with a 13, 14, 15-year-old. That is that is an abomination. You know, on the on the bell curve, that is an abomination. But that 14, 15 year old girl is, is the easiest person to manipulate for that predator. Right. So they'll get them into that space, pretend they're 18 or groom them for a couple years. And then sickeningly, 
as long as a, a grown man can pretend and, and cleanse his conscience that she's 18 or they told me she's 18, he's, he's willing to engage in that sex. So you, that's why it is that space. That's why those are the danger years of, for, for our kids. And I, again, I keep saying girls and women, that's predominantly the percentage of, of, of what's involved in this because the predominant buyers are men. But, but boys are not immune from this either. There is an entire market out there for them as well. We talked about on the phone, Jeff, you may recall about us um, talking about as youth, as a youth, you know, and a child and stuff or a kid, we, we rode our, our bikes. We, we stayed out. I mean, I, I left early in the morning uh, on the weekends or when school wasn't around in the summer and everything. Of course, you know, I was, I was leaving the house seven, eight o'clock in the morning after eating some breakfast and my mother might see me, you know, at, at eight o'clock at night uh, in the summertime if it got dark at that time frame, or it could be even sometime thereafter and uh, didn't know where my, where my whereabouts were and anything. She knew that I was nearby, but nearby could be now looking back on it, three quarters of a mile, mile, two miles down the road, because I rode to friends' houses. We rode through the woods. You know, we went to places. It was all about exploring new things and all those types of things. And um, today I noticed that, you know, more people are concerned about a fenced in private privacy fenced backyard and um, not allowing their kids to go unsupervised in their privacy fenced backyard. So, wow, have we really changed in that time period? And, and, and you know, what's so difficult for me is, is I don't know how much of this is real or not statistically or not, you know, I mean, the, the, the media and the press is, they just, everything is so blown out of proportion. I, I don't know what is real. But every time I try to temper myself, because I stare at this problem all the time, I, I'm, I, I always take a step back and I, I'm, okay, make sure you're not turning this into a boogeyman. You know, don't, th- don't make this problem bigger than it is. Every time I try to do that, something slaps me in the face. It just happened two weeks ago. You know, I, I try to be healthy about this and not and not think that there's a boogeyman behind every corner. And I'm, I'm going through those, checking my numbers, doing the research, and lo and behold, a, a special forces buddy, another guy who got smoked by Prince. They, he, <laughs> he, we did the we did the selection course together. He he gives us a call and says, "Hey man, I think I think my daughter is being lured and groomed online. Can you look into this?" And lo and behold, yeah, there's a grown man who's who's luring a friend of mine's nine year old daughter. So every every time nine. I think and I want to encourage people, nine year old daughter, you know, bad bad day for that guy. Well, every time I want to tell people, hey, just just relax a little bit, you know, let them ride the bike without the helmet. You don't need, you know, it's just something, something slaps you in the face. I, I, I don't know if it's just the day and age we live in or or what's happening. But regardless where we started, someone's got to fight. Someone's yeah. got to fight it. I don't care if it's one girl or a million girls. Somebody needs to stand up for her. Yeah, I mean, the uh, NCMEC reported an 846 846- percent increase from 2010 to 2015 reports of suspected child sex trafficking so you just think about what we just mentioned right there it's getting worse over time and so um there's no wonder that people are are fearful of everything that's going on i mean like you said you 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 see fear on the tv it's uh, sensationalized and everything uh because they want to report news 24 hours a day uh they have to have something to report every little thing that moves you know is something that they'll throw out there they don't go back and you know state that well that was uh they weren't well informed and that actually didn't occur anything because that would not be the the thing to do. You know, now I got to talk about something that's new for the day. But if these statistics are true and it's growing that quickly, this is alarming. Very alarming. And, and what I'm hoping we're going to see is is a curve. So as you educate the public, you know, as we become more aware of what trafficking is, those numbers are going to go through the roof. They may not be reflecting that the problem's actually in increasing as as dramatic as it is. I think I think it is reflecting an increase, but it's also reflecting an, an understanding and education in the community. But what but what has to happen next is we need to stand up and say enough is enough. You know, we've and and I am not a crusader for everything, right? I, 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 I'm not about, I'm not anti-prostitution. I'm not anti-pornography. I'm not anti-rap music and lyrics and music. I mean, I am 
in in a personal way in a lot of that nonsense. But we we can't fool ourselves that we have created a culture now that reinforces the sexualization, the the absolute degradation of women in many 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 sectors. So we focus on what we do, you know, what our specialties are. But somewhere along the line, our community has got to come in and backfill the slide that we've just allowed to happen. I was I was watching TV the other night, and there was a preview for a movie I've never even seen before. Um, and it looks like a bunch of kids in high school age getting together and partying and then the relationship of these young kids and having sex in the bathtub. And I'm like, what? I mean, now that's on TV, they're pushing it. And it's like and then they turn and they complain about, well, objectification and sexualizing everything. And I'm like, well, that's what you're pushing because that's what sells. and You know it. And you don't you know, people are against it, but they're for it when it works for them. And it, it, it it's. This started out probably unnoticed and easy, and then people saw how much money you can make from it, and then people start doing it more and more and more, and you tell your buddies, and then you grow and you want to make more money. Now it's a problem. Now we're catching up with a problem that's already existed for a long time, and we're starting to smack it back down, and only only until then, when people like you go out and smack it down and stop it, and, it, and it's painful for them to do it, they're not going to stop. Well, and here's something that uh, the the cops that we work with say, and, and and here's a here's a a a trend that I that I hope is happening. These older law enforcement guys, they say, hey, where we're at with trafficking today is where we were 30 years ago with domestic abuse. You know, the 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 cop would show up, and it'd be the husband and the wife, and the woman would have a black eye, and they'd have their two stories, and you know, the cop would say, you guys going to work this out, or hey, you know, it, it, you know, as as bad as as it is, these stereotypes that where the cop is like, hey, you know, ma'am. Maybe you should listen next time. You know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> that level of, of, of lack of understanding and insensitivity, like just not understanding because to the, to the cop back then, to some, why doesn't she just leave? If her husband's beating her, why doesn't she just leave? If, his, if her husband's so bad, why doesn't she just leave? Sure. So we've, be, we've begun to understand that in domestic violence, but it's the exact same thing with trafficking. If this girl doesn't want to be prostituting herself – if she doesn't want to be in this relationship, why doesn't she just leave? And 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 I and and as America begins to understand that how this is just like domestic abuse. Why doesn't a child leave his family when he's being abused? He she or she, you know what I mean? Like we, this this is all of that just in a little bit slightly different category. And as we begin to understand that, I think there will be more of an outcry to 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 lend a hand, um, offer options for these kids, these men, these women, these girls, these boys, and a little bit harsher sentencing for these predators that are exploiting them. How have you been able to work with the law enforcement? Have they embraced you guys uh, for what you guys are really doing and what you're about? And and I mean that in terms of the information about you guys. Is it available out there? And, and uh, you know, in a way in which that you're, you're starting to earn um, the respect of the law enforcement agencies? Yeah, we're we're getting there. So again, this goes back to Special Forces 101. Build rapport, build trust, small wins one day at a time. You know, and, and introdu- introducing this idea of a, a bunch of citizens, veteran veterans or not, a nonprofit engaging in law enforcement like activity. How mm. does that work? How do we how do we do all this? Yeah. Well, one of you know, one of the things that's that simple is is we we aren't law enforcement. We don't prosecute targets. We do research online because this crime lives online and in social media, on escort ads. It's publicly available information. So we've we've begun to gain to gain their trust. We're finding on how we're a complement. Just like in in special forces, we say we work by, through, and with our host nation partners. No different. Guardian Group works by, through, and with our law enforcement, both at the community, regional, and, and federal levels. So we've learned um, the, the necessary means to, to pass and exchange information. Um, they're beginning to recognize us as, as a force multiplier. And, and quite honestly, you know, bigger than this podcast, in 10 years when we circle back, I think there's a whole different way of policing. You know, what we expect our law enforcement to do uh, is, is beyond what they're capable of doing. You know, right. they they enforce laws. They don't interdict crime. 
you know right you think about neighborhood watches yeah i mean neighborhood watches is what uh, what's coming to mind when you start talking about this i mean it was um set up to be a neighborhood crime watch that they could notify the police when things did not look normal or usual uh for that neighborhood and uh the police would come in and investigate and if there's something wrong then you know they'll take care of it or something uh but without that you can't expect then your your police force to drive through your neighborhood 24 7 it's just not going to occur they don't have the staffing to be able to do that type of thing so you're kind of becoming the the neighborhood watch if you will for this that's that's a, that's a good analogy. I'm going to have to think through this one. At the end of this podcast, I'll be like, "No, that was terrible," or "That was brilliant." <laughs> we'll have, to, to be determined. All right. But the, but 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 what I do like about it also is because we're looking online, we're a neighborhood watch all over the place. Right. We can help you out in Atlanta. We can help Tom out in St. Louis. P- pick a city. We don't have to physically be there. We're looking for the clues, the patterns, and the indicators to pass to law enforcement. Because once they reach that threshold of probable cause or, or reasonable suspicion, now they're off and running. That's the biggest hurdle. you know. Because a, a, a cop has to explain to his boss, this is what I'm putting my energy into. You know, and this is where I think this is going to lead. And and there's if you're going to run into dead ends, if you don't have the time to to do the research like we do at Guardian Group, it it just sits on the back burn, on the back burner. So that is largely what we do is we find just enough information that law enforcement can begin to write subpoenas and warrants, and then they're off and running, and they don't even need our help anymore. They're able. They're always welcome to come back and, and, and expand what this network might look like. But predominantly what we're doing at this point is we are that neighborhood watch specific to sex trafficking in communities all across the U.S. So give me a case uh, scenario uh, similar. So you can use uh, a real-life example of something that happened and change the name and situation, or you can give me a hypothetical. But if let's just say that there um, is a case that's been re- either referred to you or that you've discovered Kind of take us through the process of how it is that you work together with law enforcement to bring specific criminals to justice. Sure. So um, just hearkening back to your question before, too, is how, how is that relationship going? As as we build these relationships, the trust relationships, one of the things that we are really beneficial to law enforcement is the front end of a sting. So let's take let's take St. Louis, whatever community you're in. They're, they want to conduct a sting because they want to see, okay, w- what does it look like in St. Louis? What are, are there minors being sold? What, what, do, what do the patterns look like? So a cop in St. Louis can call us and say, hey, we're going to conduct a sting um, and we want to do it next month. Can you help us kind of stack the deck on who it is we're going to call in? And by a sting, I mean the cops pretend that they're the buyer and then they call the girl that's, that's for sale and they talk to that girl and, and they offer that girl a way out. So we will look at St. Louis. We will try to develop a pattern that we can see, girls coming in and out. And the biggie is we want to put a true identity. So let's say the girl for sale, she has some moniker like, you know, Candy Rose. You know, Candy Rose, she's on an escort site. Who is she? Who's Candy Rose? Well, we we put a true name and true age to that. So now the law enforcement knows if they're going to call Candy Rose, they're getting Emily Bloomfield whatever. I think that's a real person, probably a bad choice. Anyway, Emily, <laughs> Emily Bloomfield. Yeah. Emily, if there's a, Emily, the real Emily Bloomfield, this is not, about this is not, know. no, yeah, yeah please. Is, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but so they, they make, they call that girl in and they know her true name. They know her age. So if she's a minor, they have the re- the necessary resources lined up and we want to, to identify who we think her, her trafficker is as well. So in addition to offering her a way out, if that trafficker is on site, perhaps they can arrest him at the same exact time, you know, or at least they can talk to her and say, Emily, one of the cases we did where this girl comes in and they say, Emily, your mother, Nancy is worried about you. You know, she's really worried about you. She wants you to come home. And that is a whole different atmosphere now for this girl who's being threatened and oppressed by this predator. It's a whole different starting point. Hmm. They know who she is. They know what her likes are, what her fears are. They have a whole pattern on her. So that is on the front end what we try to help law enforcement is just when they conduct an operation, it's that much more effective. And that's really easy for us to do. So that's one side of it. Um, Another one, I'll give you another example uh, to, to lead probable cause, reasonable suspicion. We had a woman who was in a shelter and she had been trafficked. 
And as she was coming through her restoration recovery, um, she she told the shelter that she was afraid her daughter, her estranged daughter, was being trafficked by the same men that trafficked her. So they send us this girls. They give us a call and say, hey, can you can you see what the indicators look like if this girl is in trouble? They send us her name. We look online. She's a 14-year-old girl, and there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that she is marked. So there's a certain system that these predators use, uh, emojis, acronyms, different photos. There's things that they do to mark their girls because they – it's a brand. So people know branding tattoos. They will brand physically brand the women because they deconflict their product, but they'll do it online. So we're able to look at this and say there is no question that there are traffickers that have marked this girl. She is groomed and marked. We couldn't tell if she was for sale yet, but there was no doubt traffickers had her marked. And if you're looking at a law enforcement agency that understands those indicators, Sometimes that alone can be enough to begin to subpoena call records. And who is who are the people that are luring, grooming this girl? Um, other smaller communities that don't understand what this crime looks like, it, it, that may not go anywhere. But in this particular case, it was a city where the law enforcement was trained uh, enough to recognize these indicators and be able to start to chip away at, at that case. Um, just like there's patterns in everything. The patterns that we learned on how ISIS communicates, how Al-Qaeda communicates, how, the, how their processes look, we've identified a lot of those in the pimping trafficking world, and, and that, that those are vulnerabilities that we can uh, help exploit for law enforcement to, to dig into further. So you have uh, both law enforcement agencies that may reach out to you as well as those who are victims who may feel like or or people who feel like they may be in a, in a bad situation or they could already be in a bad situation um, I guess all of those come to you and say, hey, guys, Guardian Group, I, I need some help. Yep, it all happens. It, it's it's rare um, that the victim will, will will reach out to us if if they do. And it's happened in the past. The first thing we try to do is get them to a safe place. Um, and, you know, we're not the ones that that shelter the girls or restore them. Uh, we'll get them to those. But. But what's interesting too is you're you're just somebody in their camp. You know, a, a few months back we had a girl from Las Vegas call and say, "Hey, my, my I'm I'm hiding. She was hiding behind a dumpster, and I don't I don't even know she like Googled our our you know, got I don't even know how she I don't remember how she even got a hold of guarding. So she calls and says, "I'm hiding behind a dumpster. My pimp is looking for me, and he's going to kill me. And what do you think the first thing we say is? Call the cops. You know, call the cops. Well, she she had. And and they they were slow to respond. So the all guarding group does now is we call that city, our contacts in that city, and say, hey man, you know, here's a we become the squeaky wheel. Someone needs to do something. We know this girl. We know her story. She's not going to make it through the night unless somebody gets there. Yeah. You know. So you know, there's just a million little places that it goes back to that SF idea. There's just all of these little relationships. And processes and bureaucracies that they just need somebody to stand in that gap and make sure the right hand is talking talking to the left. So we we try to fill that void as much as we can. And the exciting thing for us is, as we grow, um, and it's really based on on funding, is there's no reason we don't have our entire nation tied together. There's no reason you aren't talking to a guarding group rep local to where you live and local to, you know to where you're living, Tom. That's that's our vision. That will be when we truly have an impact that these traffickers will not be able to recover from. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going to go next is what is it that you need from, you know, the people out there to help support what you're doing so that we get that kind of awareness and we start changing the bell curve on the down slope. Yeah, and you know, unabashedly, you know, it's it's taken me a couple years to 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 be bold enough to say we we need funding. You know, we it 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 is it is funding that we need and and here's why. We, we talked about this, but I didn't say it directly. We are purpose-built to take veterans from the special operations community and repurpose them into counter-trafficking. And the only way we can do that is if I pay them a salary. You know, by design, we, we're not paying them a huge salary. We're bringing retired folks and we're trying to give them the same standard of life that they had in the military. So it's, it's salaries for intel analysts and operators, putting them to work against this crime. We've built experiences we haven't created wealth. 
other people in America have created wealth. And it's time to put those two things together and, and have an impact. So really the, the, the limiting factor to us is, is the funding and the ability to employ more people to go directly into operations. And then the second one too is the community using their voice. When you go to a hotel, ask them what their policy and protocol is on counter-trafficking. You know, people that go, go to their employer and say, what is, our, what is our policy against trafficking? What, what policies do we have in place for, for, for travel? You know, each, each company, take a, take a company like Google or, or Amazon with the millions of employees. What is your policy when you give uh, primacy to travel hotels or when you're holding conferences, you know, people raise their voice, ask your local politicians and, and local communities, what are our policies against trafficking? What, what are we doing to better protect our, our, our women and children and boys? And un- unfortunately, you're going to get a lot of blank stares. But as we do that in each community around America, it's, it's going to demand somebody to address it. So the biggest part there that we need as Guardian Group is really the funding, but from the grassroots level as a community, start having these discussions. My wife was in a restroom the other day at a uh, uh, a brewery and stuff that we were checking out, and uh, when when she went in there, she came out and said that there was actually a sign that she recognized on the wall that was a particular beer name, and it and it said, you know, if you're feeling like um, you're in an uncomfortable situation with a date. Um, somebody's making you uncomfortable here, um, or you know, you're you could potentially have somebody who's um, trying to traffic you or something of that nature. Just find the nearest server and just tell them you want whatever the beer was, Pink Lady, you know, and they would know automatically that's the code word that basically says we need to help them. And so normally what they would do is they said, well, at that point we'll instruct you, hey, yeah, um, come with us up to the bar. Uh, because we need to see your ID or something of that nature that would then take them out of that situation. And then they would get them out of there. If they had to call a cab, whatever the case may be, the intent though was like you're talking about some way for each hotel, restaurant, whatever the case may be to provide that type of avenue in a safe environment where maybe those pimps or whomever are not there um, that, uh, you know, again, could take them to that next step. And man, you you saw a glimpse into the future. That's the future. It, you know, it's 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 only a matter of years that that all of these establishments that you talk about will, will be there. That's where we've got to get to. Yeah. Because these these the the oppression and the control that these pimps and traffickers have over their victims is is so complete. We have to have these little opportunities where they where they see that out. You know, they back to statistics again. They say a, a trafficking victim has to has to present themselves seven times to somebody before they're heard. So, I'm, I'm, man, I, I shouldn't have brought this up because this is now this is a downer. I, we were just moving in a positive direction. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, let's seven think. times. Oh my god. So, so 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 think of that now. Think of that, that seven times that girl has to see that writing on the bathroom wall to approach somebody to actually get to an, an, an adequate safe place. You know. So it, it, it has to start it has to start somewhere. Um, and, and also again, I don't want your listeners to be misunderstood. Look, the these girls are surviving. You know, if you go up to what you think might be a victim and, and, and you ask her if she's okay, which I recommend to anyone, there's no harm in asking somebody if they're okay. Are you okay and are you safe? You know, and, and if that girl spits on you or throws her drink at you or or, or swears at you, that's okay. Okay, they are trying to survive. This is this is not. You have to understand where they're coming from, and if you see that a girl again another week, ask her the same question because it's only a matter of time. Every victim you talk to says, if more people would have asked, if more people just would have seen me, see me, and ask me if I'm okay, just just that little glimpse that somebody cares on that day where she's ready to get out, she's ready to risk leaving her trafficker. Her, her life would be different. So I, I want to encourage people just to see these boys and girls that are out there. Um, ask them if they're okay. Buy them a sandwich. You, you don't have to it, – it's not a savior complex. You're not saving them. Just help them survive. Help them know that someone in the community cares, and and that will go a long ways. And, and conversely with Guardian Group, 
I, I want those boys and girls to know out there, somebody cares. We care. We're looking for you. We're trying to help you. And we're trying to bring justice to these assholes that are, are violating you. And, and for everybody out there, a force multiplier around the world. We've done it with fusion cells. We've done it with, you know, by, with, and through, with the internet, with giving people, empowering people and tools of what to do if you encounter this situation like the sign in the restroom or just anything like that. If you see something, say something, right? Uh, cops can't be everywhere. You guys can't be everywhere. But there's so many people out there, if they just stop for a minute, and, and had that sign there or thought about it or asked a question, are you okay? And, and then go on. You might save one, ten, a thousand people, but it would be well worth it. Imagine all the people out there did that or half of the people out there that did that. What size force you'd have? I could see this say the same thing about uh, the soft community or, or for that matter, the, the veteran community and taking care of their own as well. You know, if you find that mm-hmm. um, somebody looks like they might need um, help or if there are certain signs that are going on where, you know, people are being quiet, they're not talking like they used to, they're not quite as active, those types of things, you know, reach out. It doesn't hurt to say, hey, are you OK? So when I was hearing you, Jeff, I was hearing the exact same thing of exactly what Tom and Jen do in All Secure Foundation in trying to uh, to help, you know, the community and stuff survive through post-traumatic stress or, you know, post-combat bad situations it's all the golden rule man you know it's not that hard yeah you know we we need to do better about uh, for caring for each other and and you're right it's 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 the same asking a veteran are you okay do you feel safe it's it really is the same stop being afraid to ask people are afraid to get involved you see videos of people old people getting beat up on the subway and everybody's videoing and watching it we're those people that would jump in and stop it you don't have to jump in and join the fight and be together. Hey, stop it. Yeah. People just sit back and, and they're, they're victims and they're witnesses, but they're just watchers. They just watch what goes on and like, oh, I should have done something. You know, they have to live with that. So just step in and ask that question. You know, well, you know we go back to our old military training, too, that the enemy always has a vote. And when you start looking at uh, all the decisions and things that are going on, um, whether we're talking about border crossing, you know, whether we're talking about these types of things, um, you know, the way I kind of look at it is, is they're becoming very educated on how well they are able to do things or not able to do things in certain environments. And what are the ways in which they can manipulate or choose to take control of those situations where they can have the upper advantage? Man, these guys are good, you know, and that's and that's one of the reasons we need efforts like Guardian Group. Like if, when you post an ad, okay, there's clues, but they're using voice over IPs. They're they're using anonymized uh, websites and emails. They're 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 paying through Bitcoin and these anonymized phone cards and and, and credit cards. You know, like we've these guys are clever. So when you get to that first point. That's the roadblock for law enforcement. They they stop there. We've got to we've got to break through that. So you, that is the other issue. Like like you're saying, is our our enemies are, they're sophisticated. They know they know how to use technology, and they and they know how to to manipulate boys yeah. and girls. Yeah, they're, they get a vote. They're masters they, at it. They get a vote in this whole thing. And um, so, you know, when we're talking about the legal system and all of that, if it's uh, to the point we were talking about earlier in the the, uh, statistics where um, the prosecution is very low, they know that. They know what their rights are. They know what they can get away with. They know where in the communities um, they have a better advantage on that. And um, so it's going to take a lot more of a concerted effort by all American citizens to recognize some of these things and quit trying to be fearful and living within our own little bubble, but recognize there's a big problem going on around us every day. And we see it and we hear about it, but as long as it's not affecting our bubble, we think we're all right. And there it is. Until it happens to you, most people don't care. When it happens to them, they're all about cancer or breast cancer or this or that or or sex. When it happens to them, then they care. It's like really care now and help so many more. And then preventative, if you will. It's preventative from happening to your family. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, so how can people learn more about Guardian Group and be able to support you guys? And for those who are in the community, like you're talking about, that uh, soft community that are separating from the military, that may be looking for employment or finding struggle in the transition and um, saying, hey, you know, this sounds like something I'd love to be a part of. How would they go about finding more information on that as well, Jeff? So I invite anyone to check out our website, theguardiangroup.org. You know, they can go to that site, they can sign up, they can get as involved as they want. We have monthly newsletters that go out to all of our different folks. Again, the, the online giving, what we're, what we're trying to move to with giving is, is uh, monthly gifts. Because one of the things that, that we've recognized too with Guardian Group is if, if we're going to reinvest in our veterans, if we're going to take a veteran and we're going to put him to work, him or her to work at, at Guardian Group, we have to have a predictable funding stream. You know what I mean? So we're, we're really our push over the next couple of years is monthly gifts. Even if it's even it's a little gift, it all adds up because as we begin to see monthly gifts increase, we now can forecast that and say, all right, we're going to pull this man or woman out of retirement and we're going to give them a repurpose and reinvesting in your veterans is huge. You spent a heck of a lot of money building out me as a special operations soldier, building out Tom. We're just asking you to to, to continue to, to invest in that, but, but, but for a purpose that I think is even more tangible to our, to our communities. So, um, and then also is retweeting all, you know, all the usual stuff, not retweeting, but reposting our stuff. You know, we don't tweet really, but you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, just getting, getting followers. Cause you know, some people won't talk to you until you're this well-known, you know, we're going to Guardian Group will be what I like to call that 10 year overnight success. You know what I mean? We're yeah. in the trenches. We're fighting day in and day out. And in a couple more years, as as things like this podcast give us that platform, it's going to be like we arrived overnight. So stick with us, um, continue to, to support us, and we will continue to reinvest in our veterans. Yeah, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man, and telling us all about this type of stuff. We didn't get into some of the topics that we wanted to talk about, but I did have an opportunity to text Mike and ask him if he remembered you. And, of course, the first things he asked me was, um, you know, was he an officer? And so I didn't know if that made much of a difference or anything. And I said, yes. And then he said, detachment commander in 10th group. I go, yep. He goes, I remember him. Don't remember smoking him. But if I did, it was probably in good fun. But... uh he uh, he talked about how I guess you used to run around the fob miles around the fob in Iraq to get ready for a uh, a marathon or a race or something like that. He does remember you. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's me. So yeah, he he doesn't remember smoking me. But again, you know, guys, guys like Mike, you know, all, all of these people too. It, it, it's part of the giving back, and I know you know this, Tom. You know, I can't even count the met, the amount of men and women that poured their experiences and efforts into into me. And, and it, it's, it's my honor to be able to give back. So there's a little bit of Prince in me. You know, there's a little bit of Tom. I mean, all, all of these folks that pour into your lives, again, it's just give back. Give yeah. back. Appreciate well, it, brother. Yeah. Thanks for what you're doing, Jeff. And keep it up no matter what. Likewise, Tom. Really, really proud of what you and Jen are doing. Keep with it, man. I know it ain't easy. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to talk and reach your audience. Fantastic.